And this is the Convict Australia podcast. Thank you for tuning in. In today's episode, I'll be talking about some of the primary sources we have on convicts. By that I mean convict indents, surgeons' journals, tickets of leave, certificates of freedom and pardons. These documents are a great starting point when researching convicts. So, let's begin with convict indents. A convict indent is a convict's transportation record. It was like a passport. It's the indentured agreement made between the Crown and the captain of the ship. These records were usually handed to the captain at port before they left on their journey to Australia. The early convict indents were really quite simple. They were just a list of the convict's name, sentence and place of trial. When they arrived in the colony, these indentured books were handed to the colonial secretary. The early Irish indents were much the same, but they also included the convict's crime. They were treated more like prisoners of war. A big problem with the Irish indents was that Irish officials often didn't get around to sending the indents to Australia until months or even years later. The convicts who came on the Anne, for example, received their paperwork almost 19 years after they arrived. This caused all sorts of problems when determining whether or not a convict had completed their sentence. There are three different types of convict indents. The ones I just mentioned were the colonial secretaries that were supposed to come with the convict on the voyage. The second type was the bound manuscript indents. These were the copies made and kept by the colonial secretary upon arrival. Then there were the printed indents that were distributed to magistrates and officials. Convict indents changed over time and they have become a really valuable source of information. As I mentioned, the earlier records were very basic, but from July 1814, they started to record a lot more detail. Along with their name, sentence and place of trial, they included their native place, their calling and a physical description. This may be due to a rise in convicts running away. Remember, photography wasn't available, so writing a detailed description of a person was paramount to identifying them. Their records not only included the colour of their hair and eyes, but also a description of their complexion and any scars or tattoos they may have had. From 1826, the indents get even more descriptive. Their crime, former convictions, religion, marital status, family and education were recorded. The records between 1826 and 1832 also include how they were disposed of. This is particularly useful for determining how and where they were assigned. You also find added notes on many, like the numbers of the tickets of leaves and conditional and absolute pardons recorded. The amount of detail is quite surprising and such a gift. These people are brought to life. Instead of just being a number or a name, we start to get a mental picture of them. Their indents paint a picture of not only what they look like, but the life they were leaving behind. Even a mention of their pock-pitted face can tell us that they probably had a bout of smallpox at some stage in their lives. However, the records are not always 100% accurate. 
For example, when we look at the records, we see a lot of rounded ages. Lots of people aged 20 or 30. So we can assume that many didn't know when they were born and were just giving authorities a roundabout number. Names were often misspelt, either by accident or intentionally. Convicts also may have embellished their skills or claimed to have a trade in the hope of securing better work in the colony. Another big challenge with these documents is deciphering the handwriting and understanding the abbreviations used. For example, you may see abbreviations such as BC, which means born in the colony, CF, meaning came free, R and W, meaning reads and writes, and UX, meaning wife of. There are too many for me to go through now, but there are some fabulous websites that have put together lists of abbreviations found on the convict indents and what they mean. I've left their links in the show notes. Convict indents weren't the only documentation to arrive with them. From 1817, in response to the deplorable treatment of the convicts who arrived on the Second Fleet, medical journals were kept and then later surgeon superintendents were given more and more power to look after the welfare of convicts and keep a journal of any convict that attended sick bay or received any medical treatment. They wrote down their name, the date, the symptoms and any treatment that they received. If they felt a convict was too sick or infectious, they could even stop them from boarding. They also recorded any deaths that occurred during the voyage. These records are really valuable as they offer a wider insight into ship life as some medical officers mention things like the weather, places they stopped at and people they met. They sometimes describe the behaviour of convicts, the state of their uniforms and any mutinies. Obadiah Pinio, the ship's surgeon on the voyage of Lord Lindock, described in his journal in 1838 the routine of keeping the ship clean and free of outbreaks of scurvy. He wrote, The prisons were kept dry, clean and well fumigated with hot vinegar or sprinkled with cold vinegar and the solution of chloride of lime, alternatively, every day of the week. The provisions and comforts for the prisoners were of excellent quality. I began the general use of lemon juice and sugar shortly after leaving England and wine sometime afterwards. Pinio's journal entries show that he certainly had his hands full during that voyage. Two convicts died within the first couple of weeks, one of thysis, one of smallpox. He had to immediately vaccinate anyone who hadn't had smallpox before. However, a few more mild cases broke out. Two of the wives of the guards also gave birth during the voyage. Then there was a horrific accident which involved boiling tea scalding 16 men. Sadly, one 18-year-old died from his injuries. Next, there was a huge outbreak of scurvy. Pinio reported 150 cases in total, which sadly resulted in 19 deaths. When the ship finally arrived, 68 people were sent to the general hospital, with another nine sent the next day. Another 30 were sent to the prisoners' barracks for medical treatment. Next on our list we have the ticket of leave. In 1801, Governor King officially introduced the ticket of leave. 
It was like a parole system for convicts. The ticket of leaves were offered to convicts as a reward for good behaviour. It allowed them to live outside of the barracks and work for themselves. This gave convicts a sense of freedom. They were also able to own land. It was also beneficial for the government as it meant that they could cut costs as they didn't have to provide them with lodgings and food. It also incentivised good behaviour as convicts strive to obtain one. You did have to abide by strict rules when having a ticket of leave. Having the ticket meant that you lived and worked in a particular district. If you were caught outside your area, your ticket would be cancelled. However, if you needed to leave the district to run an errand for your employer, for example, you could apply for the ticket of leave passport. This was a separate piece of paper that would state the area the convict was travelling to. They also had to have their ticket on them at all times. Church attendance on a Sunday was compulsory and they had to attend musters. These were advertised in the local papers, for example, the Sydney Gazette. These musters were held at the barracks or at their local police station. You can search on Trove for examples of these. If a convict broke any of these rules or behaved badly, the ticket of leave was withdrawn and they were put back into government employment, losing all their hard-earned freedoms. When tickets of leave were first introduced, a convict could get one as soon as they landed. But as time went by, a convict had to serve out a certain portion of their sentence before being able to apply for one. For example, during Governor Macquarie's time from 1810 to 1821, you could earn a ticket of leave after serving three years of your sentence. But by 1827, it was dependent on the time left on your particular sentence. For example, if you had a seven-year sentence, you had to show that you had served four years with the one master to apply and five years if you'd had two masters. For 14-year sentences, you had to serve out six years with the one master or eight years with two masters or ten with three masters. For convicts with life sentences, they had to serve out eight years of their sentence with one master or ten years with two masters or twelve with three masters. However, if a convict was removed from a master for a reason other than misconduct, they could still be eligible to apply sooner. For a short time too, you could earn your ticket sooner in particular circumstances, for instance, for capturing runaways, etc. The ticket of leave came from a book that was like a big checkbook. There were two parts to it. The ticket itself, which was handed to the convict and was usually folded up and kept in their pocket for safekeeping. For this reason, there are not many in existence today. But if you'd like to see an example of one, head to the Convict Australia Instagram page. There is a photo of Thomas Beaton's ticket of leave, which is on display at the Hyde Park Barracks Museum. Each ticket had a number and was dated. It stated their name, where and when they were tried, their sentence, the ship and its master, and the year of arrival, and most importantly, the district they were assigned to. In Thomas Beaton's case, it was the district of Yass he was assigned to. 
Then there was the ticket of leave but. This part stayed in the book with the government. A ticket of leave but had the same details as the ticket plus a few extras like their native place, their trade or calling, the offence, year of birth, height, complexion, the colour of their hair and eyes. You can often find other notes made to the ticket of leave but after it was issued, such as if the ticket was cancelled or reissued as it had been lost or stolen or if they had earned themselves a certificate of freedom or a pardon or if it was amended to allow the convict to change the district in which they were assigned to. If you'd like to see an example of this book, the State Archives and Records of New South Wales have a webinar called Archives Behind the Scenes, Ticket of Leave Butts. I'll leave a link in the show notes. Another important document when it comes to tracing convicts is the Certificate of Freedom. When a convict finished their sentence, they were issued with a Certificate of Freedom. Convicts who had received their Certificate of Freedom were no longer known as a convict, but as an emancipist. To get their certificate, convicts had to make a declaration at the local magistrates. Their indents would be checked and then they would be issued with the documentation. Physically, the certificates were very much like the ticket of leaves, as they came out of the same sort of checkbook, and the butt was kept by authorities and the certificate was given to the convict. And, like the ticket of leave, convicts had to keep their certificate of freedom on them at all times, as since the introduction of the Bushrangers Act of 1830, anyone caught without proof of their freedom could be arrested on suspicion of being a runaway convict. So for the convicts that had life sentences, instead of getting a certificate of freedom, they were given a pardon. There were three types of pardons, the conditional pardon, the absolute pardon and a royal pardon. The conditional pardon was the most common one handed out. It gave the convict their freedom within the colony. However, they could not return home to the UK or any other place they may have been tried. You could only return with an absolute pardon or royal pardon. A royal pardon was exceptionally rare and could only be authorised by the reigning monarch of England. So that's just some of the documentation available on convicts and these documents can be found on websites like Ancestry and New South Wales State Archives and Records or just head down to your local library and they can help. If you need help deciphering handwriting on the documents you're researching, head to the Convict Australia Facebook group and upload a picture of the document. Together, we can try and figure out what it says. And, as I mentioned before, if you need help with the abbreviations written on these documents, we can help or use the links provided in the show notes to look them up. Good luck in your search. Thank you for listening to the Convict Australia podcast. If you'd like to show your appreciation and get more involved, there are a number of ways you can. The first is by signing up to Convict Australia on Patreon and you will get some perks like the Convict Australia newsletter. Secondly, leave a review and tell your friends and family. This really does make a huge difference. And lastly, 
join the Facebook and Instagram group Convict Australia. All the links I've mentioned will be in the show notes. Thank you again. Till next time.